Our second lesson is taken from the Old Testament. It's a familiar story from the book of Daniel. Many of you, from the time you were little children in Sunday school, have seen the picture of the four, uh, the three, four young men at first, Daniel and his three uh, friends who were taken into captivity about 605 or 606 B.C. The people of God, the people of Israel, had been rebellious, and Jeremiah, the prophet of God, had warned them that God would not tolerate uh, their unfaithfulness, their insubordination, their idolatry, that God would chasten them, that is, he would cleanse them by punishment. And so in three successive waves of punishment, God did punish them, and they were led into the captivity in Babylon. And in that captivity period, uh, there arises some great things that are written. They are written in the furnace of affliction, people who are tried by fire. Today we live in a world where Christians who know and love Jesus are often hounded and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In this past week, I've spoken with students from Iran, from Guyana, from China, who know what it is to feel like a Daniel, to go far away from home into another culture, and who know what it is to be uh, life to be made difficult for the practice of their Christian faith. So what we read today is very much up to date. If you look at the cover of Time magazine and see an unemployed electrician who dares to defy all of the Soviet Union to help the people in Poland to achieve some measure of independence, we see that there are still struggles against tyranny. In the past year, we have noted the death of leaders of great power and dictatorial power. And there are places in the world where it is so difficult to be a Christian that it's no wonder that one of our young friends who came here before she left to come away had read to her by the people in her house church the third chapter of the book of Daniel and how she was told to hold on to her faith in Jesus Christ. You will remember that in chapters 1 and 2, when the four young men are taken into captivity, along with many, many others, remember, there were four who were selected because they were very bright. And they were told that they could eat at the king's table, and they could partake of his rich foods and drink of his rich wines. But they said no. They purposed in their heart that they would be faithful to God. They had laws restricting them regarding their diet and their faith, and so they would not go back upon their faith, and they refused. Uh, they were people of prayer, they were people of principle, and they were people of prayer. They prayed to God, and they trusted in God. And God enabled them to perform brilliantly under fire. And now we come to this passage in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Let me read selected parts of it so that we can go more quickly. I'll begin at verse 1, then I'll skip down to verse 16. Nebuchadnezzar the king 
made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it was six cubits. He set it up on the plain, the width was six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the judges and the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, all people and nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the psaltery and the bagpipe and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whosoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And now, of course, you know that there were three who refused. They were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pick up their story in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, the king who had commanded them to bow down and worship this image or to be cast into the fire, and had taunted them by saying, Who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, All Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. We don't have to call a committee together and think about it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie them up and to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up, their coats, their caps, their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. And he answered and said, Look. I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like unto a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. And he responded and said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around, and they saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies of these men, nor was there the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had they even the smell of fire upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And therefore I make a decree that any people or nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. And the king caused them to prosper in the province of Babylon. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading of his word. As a little boy, my mother used to read to me the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which was her favorite passage in the Bible. You will remember that it's sort of God's hall of fame. And you will find in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews a passage of scripture that tells about those who quench the violence of fire, who stop the mouths of lions. And evidently those words are meant to refer back to this period in the history of the people of God when some who were chosen by God and taken away into cruel bondage and captivity far away were put to a severe test. And let me say this, that God grows us and prepares us for tests that we come up against. And it well may be that we who have thought we have been spared so much in America may one day be brought to a test too in which all of the fluffy faith that we see about us disappears like a mist before the sun and we are called upon to stand up and to be counted for Jesus Christ. There is a great shaking that is taking place everywhere, it seems to me, both politically and in the church. I've seen strong men in great churches who, as a matter of conscience, have resigned positions of great authority and power because they could not any longer go along with the crowd. Well, these four young men who had been taken into captivity had first of all decided that even a matter of diet was a matter that was important to them and that they would not defile themselves by giving in to what the king wanted them to eat at the table. And of course this worried the steward who had the charge of them and he argued with them about it and they told him to leave them alone and let them follow their conscience. They were strict vegetarians. And God blessed them and their countenance was more favorable to look upon and they demonstrated by their knowledge their brightness and so even this was satisfactory to the king. 
And then in chapter 2, Daniel has an unusual experience with a king who has a dream and forgets his dream. You ever have a dream and forget it? I do all the time. Well, he had a dream and forgot it. And then he called for his wise men to recall the dream which he had forgotten, which is pretty hard to do, and uh, then to explain it to him. Well, they, could, they were noted for making famous tales out of dreams, but if they didn't even have a dream to work on, that made it pretty rough. And it made it even rougher still when the king said, if you don't come up with it, you're dead. And then there was this man who had been in charge of these brilliant young men from Israel, if you please. And they, he said, we have one young man here that I'd like for you to call in. And he said an interesting thing to the king. He didn't say, King, I can tell you what you dreamed. He said, there is a God in heaven who knows the secrets of every mind and heart. And I serve God. And God will reveal it to me. And God did reveal it to him. And the king was greatly pleased and placed him in a position of authority along with his friends. Daniel seems to have been gone someplace or was not or was exempted from the next test. But great uh, kings, dictators, there is an old, old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen it in China with Chairman Mao. We see it in Russia with Stalin. We saw it in uh, Yugoslavia with Tito. We saw it in Spain with Franco. We saw it in Iran with the Shah. We see it with the Ayatollah now. There are others, people who come to positions of great authority and power, and then they want almost to be worshipped. They want the little red book or their sayings and everything given over unto them. And they become drunken and mad with authority. And everything seems to revolve about them. And this seems to have happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he ordered that a statue should be made 90 feet tall. Should be a powerful and impressive figure. Gold. And that everyone at the sound of music. It's interesting how dictators use music. I studied the life of Adolf Hitler very carefully. And I studied the use of religion by political demagogues. And I studied the Reich Minister of Propaganda, Goebbels. And Goebbels was a genius at using music. He even got from American football games the idea of seek higher. So that in a huge Nuremberg Stadium, they could use this music and use the seek higher to arouse the emotions of people. One reason that I do not call out the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, to be sung in this church, uh, is that the tune to that hymn brings back to those who have ever suffered under the Nazis music that almost makes their blood run cold because they know uh, what that tune meant to them at one time. Well, the dictator used his music, and he used an impressive image, and he demanded that everyone was to bow down to it. 
Now, there are four kinds of faith that will come to surface here. The first is credulous. That's easy to believe. If we say something is incredible, it's unbelievable. Incredulous is unbelievable. But credulous faith is something that's easy. And so there were people who were saying, look, this is a very expensive statue. It's 90 feet tall. It's made out of gold. Do you know how much gold costs now? And it's 90 feet tall? Listen, if he put the statue up in the United States, Wall Street would be falling down in front of it today. 600 bucks an ounce. There are plenty of people who would go for it. Everybody is doing it. Be practical. Bow down to it. Why you want to be weird? Go along with the crowd. Everyone's doing it. One of the dumbest meals I ever ate was in a cafeteria in Waco, Texas. If there's anything I hate, it's chop suey. And I got caught in a line of people going through a cafeteria, and as usual, I was talking, and everybody in front of me ordered chop suey, and so when it got to me, I said chop suey, and then I looked at that junk, and I thought, why in the world did I order this? I didn't want it. And the only reason I ordered it was because I didn't want to stop and think and uh, take something different. Well, don't go along with the crowd. The people of God have had to be people who stood up for their convictions. And these men were men of principle. And so their faith here would not allow them to go with the great throngs, the probably hundreds of thousands who assembled out on the plain and heard the very great music and all bowed down. The statistics were all there. Everybody was doing it. The gold was very impressive. But they said, we march to a different drummer. We hear a voice you can't hear. Our faith is in the living and the true God, and we will not violate that faith by bowing down. Well, there was a second kind of faith that was here. When I think of all of these thousands of Jews that were taken away into captivity, why is it? that only these three young men, there must have been many more Jewish people there. Why is it that these three are the only three who have the inner integrity to stand up against this? They are not cowardly. There is a cowardly faith who goes along because everyone else is doing it. They do not fear God. They go along and do the thing because the other people are there. You know, Jesus said an interesting thing. It ought to be revived. He said, if you are ashamed of me and of my name, the name of Jesus, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. I've often told this story, and I tell it again today for the sake of the new students who haven't heard it and for others to be reminded of it. There is none other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. If you turn your back on Jesus, one day you will face him and God will turn his back on you. The early Christians suffered for that name. They were beaten and told that they were to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And so in a fluffy, easy society, when someone tells you that you're not to conclude your prayer in the name of Jesus, 
You don't have any other way to God except to Jesus. You're a public relations puppet for your own self and you sin against God when you deny the name of your Savior. People have been burnt at the stake for that faith in Jesus Christ. Why do you think all of those earliest Christians were killed? They were told that if they would just take a pinch of incense and put it at the altar of the emperor and get a certificate handed to them that they had done so, they would be free. But instead of that, they were thrown to the lions, they were dipped in pitch and burned at the stake, but they would not deny the name of Jesus. They would not deny his name. And that's important for you to remember. I'll never forget in my first pastorate having to offer a prayer at some rotary club. And some, uh, just before the meeting, someone had cautioned me about some Jewish person who was present. Now, a Jewish person, uh, there's no way to God except through Jesus Christ. He has the freedom to exercise his faith in, in this country under our laws in his way. But I, as a Christian, have no way to pray to God except through the Lord Jesus, and I don't believe he can get to God except through Jesus either. And I'm not going to uh, take away the name of Jesus just to please the people at the Rotary Club. I don't even like it anyway. But uh, uh, they, uh, uh, you see this... Uh, chicken a la king faith uh, that goes around and that's an appropriate dish for it um, that uh, goes around and bows down uh, to everything uh, uh, this is cowardly and I remember once I, I was about to give in to that and uh, I went to Washington D.C. and I happened to be backstage with Charles Malik who was uh, the president, had been the president of, of all things, the United Nations General Assembly. And I was asking Malik about his advice about praying in the name of Jesus in public and how I almost gave in but didn't. And I thought he was going to say something kindly to me, but he turned on me like the wrath of God. And he said, don't you ever give in on the name of Jesus Christ. People have suffered for that name. And if you give in on the name of Jesus, you're a coward and you're a traitor to your Lord. And boy, he scalded me uh, with what he had to say. But I remember listening very carefully because he was standing backstage and fixing to go out and address about 3,000 people. And he spoke on the name of Jesus. And he spoke in great power and with great authority. Well, some reporter came up to Malik after a meeting of the World Council of Churches in Evanston, Illinois, when they were debating whether or not to water down the statement on the deity of Christ. And Malik had been like Athanasius against the world. And someone came up to him, some reporter, and said, in view of your position in the United Nations, with all the Buddhists and the Muslims and the people of other faiths, how can you possibly insist in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only way to God? And you know what Charles Malik said to the reporter? He said the words which I have typed out here. He said, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and of my name, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. I do not want Jesus Christ to be ashamed of me. And the politician gave the preacher a lesson that day, and I've never forgotten it. There's a third thing I want to mention quickly. It's commercial faith. 
Religion is big business in America. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars are mailed in. Send us some money and we promise God's going to fill your billfold. Uh, send us some money and we're going to put you in a little capsule and put it on the Mount of Olives and pray for you and you're going to get well. That's commercial religion. That's paying God to get something out of it. Now that's not what we see here in the book of Daniel. That's not what we see here. And it's important for us to remember it. Now I know the gospel is preached many by many fine broadcasters and I'm for that. But I can't understand why someone up in Maine who has got a little church school to support and his own little tiny church to keep up should be mailing money to California to build a crystal cathedral. Uh, doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, we need to remember that this commercial faith is not it. And... Uh, God is not going to answer prayers our way. I have hurt in pain, and I hurt this morning, and I hurt yesterday, and I have had pain ever since I had a stroke in 1974, and I have prayed a thousand times, I suppose, that I might be relieved of it, but the pain remains. It's still there. Sometimes it's worse than at other times. And I know what it feels like to wake up in the middle of the night in pain and wonder what in the world it is that the Lord wants to prove to me about the pain. Well, one thing is for certain. He wants to prove that his grace is sufficient, that his grace is sufficient, even in my weakness. The Apostle Paul went into the city of Corinth and in a great mob scene that took place, it looked as though uh, trouble would break out on every side. And God said to him, I have much people in this city. Jesus came to him and said, I have much people in this city. And an old man I'll see in a few weeks, I hope, old John Bolton, when Billy Graham was being jumped on by the Charlotte Observer, he sent him that text that said, I have much people in the city. It was a meeting in Charlotte. I have much people in this city. I thought it was very appropriate. There are different times of persecution. Uh, persecution where your freedom is taken away and where you suffer. And there is intimidation and inner anxiety and pressure that is put upon you in other ways. Well, the commercial faith is not uh, what's any good. Uh, it's baby stuff. It's like a little kid who comes and asks his father to buy him a bicycle and if he refuses says you don't love me anymore because you don't give me what I want or like the girl who prays to God give me this boy if you love me you'll let me have him and uh, life will be a dream and God says if you get him it's going to be a nightmare I know more than you do you obey me uh, be grateful that the Lord reserves the right to answer the prayers in the best way um, he knows what is best for us, and we should always remember that. We humbly present our requests. We make our requests known to the Lord. But I don't think I'd ever pray again if I thought he'd answer every prayer uh, uh, like I asked him to answer it, because I know his wisdom 
is greater and his judgment is more fair and his love is more wonderful. Now let me go quickly to the fourth time. We've got uh, a credulous faith and a cowardly faith and a commercial faith. And then the fourth type of faith is what we've seen here, and it's courageous faith. They said to the king, and I love their little speech to him, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. There's no question about that. He delivered Paul from that crowd. He delivered Jesus when they were going to stone him in one place. When Paul had his thorn in the flesh and besought the Lord thrice to remove it, the Lord didn't take the pain away. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. But then later on, Paul was beheaded in Rome. Later on, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it is thy will, let this cup pass from me. And God did not allow the cup to pass from him, and he did go to the cross and die. But out of that, God brought us the gift of his love. And he brought us redemption from our sins and forgiveness of our sins and the promise of his presence with us. That's what's so wonderful here. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us. But if not, O king, be it known unto you, we will not bow down and serve your idols. And they were cast into the fire. And the king looked into the fire and saw a fourth. And the King James Version translates it as a theophany, uh, a, a manifestation of the presence of God. We believe it was the Lord Jesus himself. He said, didn't I put three men in the furnace? I see a fourth, and he is like unto the Son of God. And I believe Jesus was there with them. Just as Jesus is with his people who suffer today in Russia and China and in other places in the world, and here in America too, when they go through subtler pressures, that Jesus is with them, the promise of his presence. That's courageous faith. They didn't know what God was going to They knew God had the power to deliver them. And they didn't know what he was going to do, but they did know one thing, that they were going to be obedient to God no matter what happened. Job in the Old Testament said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is believing in spite of the consequences, no matter what's going to happen. And it meant that this courageous faith was dearer to them than life itself. Now let me say just a couple of practical things to our new students, lessons you can learn. One of our sweet old missionaries who went to be with Jesus this year, Aunt Gay Curry, had two children who died in tragic circumstances in China. And she used to love a story that I told she used to collect stories and put them in her scrapbook. And one afternoon at a prayer meeting over in the lobby of the green room at the assembly, and 
I had told a story which I got from, uh, it was actually taken from Vanderbilt University from a professor who knew something about the, the habits of ermine. If you ever notice uh, the robes of the Queen of England, uh, those robes are lined with a white fur. This comes from an ermine, a little animal that bears the whitest fur and the best white fur that is possible to obtain. And as a result of it, it is an, it is an emblem of purity. And it is used as the, uh, to trim the robes of uh, judges and of kings and of queens. And an ermine is, is taken in this unusual way. They usually come from Siberia. And they are captured because the ermine is very clean in its habits. And the hunters for this little animal know that if they take filth and daub it at the hole in the rocks where the ermine lives or around the old hollow log where the ermine stays, and then the hounds pick up the scent of the ermine and follow the tracks of the ermine, the ermine will run quickly to try to come to its den. But when it comes to the den and sees the foul filth that's there and smells it, the little ermine will turn around and courageously face the hounds and have its white fur stained with its blood rather than to have it stained by the filth it is daubed by the trapper there at its den. I wish we had Christians who would be as faithful to Jesus Christ and take a lesson from that little creature. That purity is dearer than life. That because other people are getting into sex sins, I'm not going to go that route. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus indwells me and I belong to him. My tongue belongs to Jesus, and I should speak things that are becoming to him. My life belongs to Jesus, and I should stand up faithful to him. If we had Christians like that, and we need them desperately today, then the message that we speak to others would be heard and adhered to, and we would know the joy, the joy of that fourth person, the Son of God, who is with us. Be sure you take your bulletin home and remember how to help Christians in the world who suffer. When the heat's on in the church, we need to pray. We need to pray for others. Spend time with the Lord in prayer. When the heat's on in the church, we need to love each other. And that love can soften and heal pain. When the heat's on in the church, we need to give. Some need money, some need clothes, some need a job. And Christians ought to provide for one another. Four, we need to serve. When the heat's on, we can't rely just on the paid preacher. But we have to rely on the spiritual gifts that each of us have to minister to each other. And then the individual. We are to expect pressure. Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you, so you can expect it. We are to rejoice in pressure. He said, count it all joy when you are 
accounted worthy to suffer uh, for his name. And lastly, we are to do right in pressure. Make sure that when opposition comes, that it comes because you have been standing up for Jesus and not because of your own foolishness. These are lessons which I hope that our new young friends will take to heart today. When I think of the men who are going into office, I want to close with a little poem. O God of earth and altar, bow down and hear our cry. Our earthly rulers falter, our people drift and die. The walls of gold entomb us, the swords of scorn divide. Take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. From all that Terra teaches, from lies of tongue and pen, from all the easy speeches that comfort cruel men, from sale and profanation of honor and the sword, from sleep and from damnation, deliver us, good Lord. Let us receive the benediction. Now, O God, our Father, we pray that if there be in our midst someone who has not yet known the great blessing and the joy of having a faith in Jesus Christ that means that he is with us always, even to the end of the world, that he bears our sins and takes them away, that he is present with us in all of our losses and crosses that we have to bear, and that he will one day lead us into the joys of heaven. Help that person to give as much of himself or herself as she knows how to give to as much of the Lord Jesus as they can understand and then begin to learn and to grow in that commitment and in that faith. And now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.